Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. I had to go about it This is the final word, story time. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. We're not far away from taking off of Pakistan. You'll be hearing this on the weekend. We leave on Monday. We'll have time to record a couple of extra shows before we jump on the flight, but that's where most of our attention is. But for now, we're going to go looking back into the history of the game. Jeff, welcome to you. Of course, yesterday was a big one for numerology types. The 22nd of February, 2020. And it was noted on the Discord channel that that was the day we reached 666 patrons, which uh, was nice and neat. And it got some conversation going as to what our next target should be. We're sort of well ahead of Jimmy Anderson now, really even accounting for the the drop-off we have each month with credit cards expiring and and all the rest of it. So we should set our sights ahead a little bit, but I don't feel comfortable with going to 708 like most suggested to Shane Warner. I think we can do better than that. I think I think bigger thinking. I think, uh, you know, blue sky dreaming. Let's go to Murley. Let's aim for 800. <laughs> um, you know, why, why settle for second? Uh, why settle for a, a silver medal in the Commonwealth Games when you could win a gold medal at the Commonwealth Games? So I think that's what we should do. Uh, I'd also note that 666 is the combination code on the briefcase in Pulp Fiction when John Travolta opens the briefcase to check what is in inside that Marcellus Wallace wants back so badly um, that nobody knows what it is. That's what he flicks the numbers to, 666. So, um, yeah, I think we've had the devil's number uh, once or twice before, but, you know, things, things they stay in flux. But I reckon 801 should be where we're aiming next. Okay, 801 it is. Uh, before we get into the, the main part of the show, we have an email here, uh, Jeff, that uh, took your eye from Nick and 80. 
Yeah, I thought this was interesting. He said, I've got a theory for why white ball cricket crowds have declined precipitously in Australia, which is something we've been talking about recently. Under the old local market blackout rules, writes Nick, unless the match was sold out, it couldn't be broadcast in the market hosting the match. And, and this is, you know, this is something we've thought about before, but I hadn't thought about this particular aspect of it. He said, it was in the economic interests of Channel 9 to have that game sold out in order to broadcast to the host city. So they would market the absolute shit out of it, like the way the Channel 7 promote TV shows during the tennis, that kind of level of bombardment. During each match, they would be ruthlessly advertising the next, and it was in the cricket fans' interest to attend to make sure they could actually see the game. So even against average opposition, right. Australian one day as would sell out. Since the blackout rules lifted, average opposition is ignored, and even uh, India or England barely get a decent show-up. The incentive disappeared, and Channel 9 weren't going to waste a cent asking people to go instead of watching it on the sofa. This is now magnified when you factor in the paywall nonsense, which is an interesting thought because I don't want to sound like one of those wankers, but I don't watch a lot of free-to-air TV, so I don't know whether they do still advertise the games as something to attend. I'm, I don't know whether CA get ads on. They probably do as part of an in-kind deal or whatever it is, but I'm not sure what the level of marketing is. It sounds like it's substantially less than it was anyway. Well, it used to be iconic, didn't it? And get your tickets from Bass when you were in uh, Victoria or, or Tasmania or Ticketek in Sydney, and it was a, almost like a bit of a, a parochialism about, about ticket uh, merchants. But, yeah, interesting about the economic incentives that Nick referred to there. It was always seen as a negative thing that... Uh, that one day internationals, you'd get the first two hours, or or you would get the uh, the final session uh, of a day's play at a test match live against the gate, as they used to say. But since that's dropped away, that that would be a part of it. I don't think it'd be a huge part of it, but you know, I'm interested in in that variable there. We might come back to uh, the the location of uh, of white ball games in Australia. Actually, in one of my answers, there's a bit of a an Easter egg for you later on in the show, Jeff. Uh, John O'Halen has sent in the latest uh, Hicks watch on Jody Hicks round twelve. Grade cricket in Sydney. Her team, Sydney, batted first. Jody opened. Finally got a chance up the top of the order. Unfortunately, out for a four-ball duck as Sydney oh. went on to make 229. But she got a bowl late in the game and took two for one of her one over to end the match in good form. So uh, good work from Jody there. Also on the village report where Jono's been keeping an eye on our final word, 11 players. Uh, he says, Nickamick continued his form, coming in with his team in trouble at seven for 72, put on a four 48-run partnership for the eighth wicket. Made 24. Canberra City couldn't defend the total, but Nick took three for 36 of 7.4. And then Glenfin Keld played on a tricky deck as Hampton restricted their opposition to 90 but saw themselves three for three early on, or if you're in England, that would be three for three. Uh, and uh, Glenn came in during the run chase, got the team all the way up to 26 uh, before being the fifth out for a valiant 13. So thank you, Jono, for keeping an eye on that. Very good. This is turning into one of my favourite segments. I wonder whether we can expand this to other patrons and, and members. Well, I suppose it'll only really work on the Discord page, but if you are going around in, in local cricket or even village cricket, let us know. And if you're on my cricket especially, that should allow Jono to do a slightly bigger wrap-up each week, which is quite a nice thing because we're, if nothing but encouraging of people playing cricket, even though most of us have retired and put the kid away by this stage, um, I admire those who keep on keeping on. Jeff, uh, time to crack on. Uh, we have some new numbers and we play a game. What's it called? 
Nerd Pledge. It's called Nerd Pledge. It's the game we play with all the lovely people on the Patreon page. They are the backers of the show. They fund this program, all of our research time, all the rest of it, by sending us contributions. But those contributions are not a normal currency amount, not a normal denomination. They're very specific. They relate to cricket in some way, and we have to figure out what the relationship is. First cab off the rank this week, Matthew Lincoln, uh, which is actually a type of car now that I think about it, so he could <laughs> be literally the first cab off the rank. $3.82 in the AUD, so three eight two. I've got to interpret that. And, uh, Adam, I, I looked at batting averages first because I thought it could be a 38.2. You love doing that, and, 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 I, and I can't do it. You've, you've worked out how to do this, and I haven't. So you're at a distinct advantage when it comes to numbers that are <laughs> around that 38, 39 range? Uh, well, well, there's an interesting trio who averaged 38.2 in test cricket. Peter Burge, who was an Australian opener in the 60s, I reckon, who um, who was the match referee for the Dirt in the Pocket affair with the uh, with Michael Atherton in the 90s. He was the one presiding over that uh, tribunal after the game. Andy Sandham, who made the first triple century in test cricket and uh, also the highest score for a player in their final test match, 325. And Asad Shafiq, the Pakistani middle order player who we've enjoyed the work of over the years. In one day cricket, Charlotte Edwards, 38.2 across her 191 matches, which means that she spent over six months straight just playing one day internationals for England, if you added them all up back to back. But I went somewhere else with this. I thought, I'll tell our listeners a little story. Take us back to 2001, a year Mm -hmm. we talk about a lot when Australia played the epic series in India. And this this was where I really started to get a taste for cricket punditry not that you know i was just listening on the radio and and uh, following along at home um, while i was at, at university but i remember watching that series and i remember thinking they've got to get damian martin into this test team like they they have to he's he was doing so many great things he was so good in the one day team and i was like martin's got to come in how does he come in and i wasn't a huge ponting fan i didn't really like his demeanor on the field um, and he had a, an awful series in india but i thought look ponting we know how good ponting is ponting got to go up to three, squeeze out Justin Langer and get Damien Martin in at six. And lo and behold, when they went to England, that's exactly what they did. And what does Damien Martin do? He makes 100 in his first innings back in the team. 105 at Edgebaston, makes 52 at Lords. He's not out in Nottingham, makes 118 at Headingley, 64 not out at the Oval. And I just had this great feeling of vindication when he made the first 100. I was like, yes, I was right about the thing that they should have done. And as that tour went on, that England tour, I started thinking, well, Michael Slater's struggling. He's not playing very well. I thought they should bring back Langer as an opener. He's a first drop. He could open. Lo and behold, in the fifth test at the Oval, they do. And he makes 102 not out first up. Gets hit in the head, as per usual, retired hurt. And that was, that was when I started to get the taste of like... Oh, if you can speculate about things that they should do and then they do them, my my word, it was it was quite a feeling. So I just remember the you know that that glorious feeling of of righteousness when my call about Martin was right and my call about Langer was right and everything worked exactly as I thought it should. And the reason that is relevant is that over that Ashes series, Damien Martin made three hundred and eighty two runs 
had an average of 76. Very nice. Good when it comes off uh, in terms of uh, forecasting yeah. <laughs> things they should do. Uh, it doesn't always work that way in punditry land, but uh, I'm glad that you were correct at the first time of asking, uh, and, I'm, and I'm glad that Matthew Lincoln is part of our Nerd Pledge family. G'day to you. Uh, second up today is from Sean Pollock, 632, again in AUD, and Jeff has a clue with this one. 632, says Sean, was my first ever day at a test. Uh, it set up the first home series win against that country. Now, I got a bit distracted here on this one. I went down... I can't believe that. Uh, yes, exactly right. I, I went through a lot of... The, uh, I went to a lot of places uh, trying to work out what this might relate to in relation to Australia specifically because it was a, a pledge in AUD. Uh, but it was... It, it couldn't have been that and I worked through this systematically. But for a moment, I thought possibly when Australia first beat Sri Lanka in a home series in, in 1988-89, they, they played a, a three-test match series and I thought, well, maybe this is where the 632 will come in. I initially went to Perth where they played in February 88. There was a Dean Jones tarn. They made 455, then knocked over Sri Lanka for 194 and 153 with Merv Hughes and Craig McDermott. Tony Dottermade and Steve Waugh taking all 20 wickets between them. But no 632 to speak of there and I would have been grasping at straws. Uh, then I pondered whether it might be in relation to when they first beat Zimbabwe in a series at home, which was the series in, in 2003 when Hayden made his 380. But again, no, no six for 32s or 632s there, which which really stood out. That score's only been made once at test level, and that was at Lords in 1993 when Australia made their 632 for four declared. Slater, 152. Taylor, 111. Boone, 164. And Mark Wall let the team down. He could have been the fourth century maker in a row, but he was uh, out 99, uh, out to Phil Tufnell, wasn't it, Jeff, if I recall correctly, for 99? I, I should remember so. that. And then I looked at all the six for 32s that might tally and, and look, there's a, there's a Larwood six for 32 to start body line, but of course he, he'd already had a, a fairly distinguished career by that stage. So I just stopped and thought, this can't be anything to do with Australia. It just doesn't add up. Then I thought, well, when did teams first beat Australia at home? And this is when I happened upon John Bracewell and his marvellous 6 for 32 against the Australians for New Zealand in the first edition of the Trans-Tasman Trophy, actually, in 1986, early 1986. Now, remembering that New Zealand had beaten Australia only a few months earlier, in late 1985, when they obviously won with Hadley's extraordinary performance at the Gabba and, and they won that series 2-0. Well, at the end of the season, they went over to New Zealand for three test matches. And that was the first time they beat Australia at home and it was set up uh, in the decisive test match uh, was the third and final because uh, the first two were draws uh, and it was uh, John Bracewell who took six for 32 in the second innings to, to win the test match. He was the first New Zealand spinner in that match to take 10 wickets across two innings. He, he had four for 74 in the first and, and sure enough he was named player of the match but it's a really good test match. Australia make 314 with a Jeff Marsh ton to get going so they're pretty well placed especially after they bowl out New Zealand for 258 and carry a decent first innings lead. Jeremy Coney uh, top scored with 93, friend of the show. But it was all turned on its head in the second innings when Australia were all out for 103. And Jeff, I thought you'd love this. In a test we're already examining, David Boone carried his bat 
for 58 out of all out 103. Ooh. He's nearly carried his bat and had a bannerman. I mean, he's within he's within 10 more runs, I suppose. A dozen not, runs. Yeah, maybe, yeah. yeah, it might have been 15 or 16 runs when you consider that he would have, you know, the, the quantum would have been bigger. But still, close to a bannerman and carrying his bat there, David Boone, and, and Wayne Phillips was the only other man in double figures with 15. But then Bracewell goes nuts. He gets Border for six, then Matthews, and then he bowls Steve War, Ray Bright, and Craig McDermott in quick succession. And then they win the Test match easy in the end, chasing 160. They, they do it by eight wickets with uh, John Wright making 59. And Ken Rutherford, another man we've talked about a fair bit on story time, and unbeaten 50 there with Martin Crowe at the end. I love the fact, though, Jeff, it took him 85 overs to get there. They really wanted to make certain of it. They weren't <laughs> going to take any risks on what would be their first series win against Australia at home and also uh, the only team uh, to beat Australia twice in the same season. Of course, it's pretty hard to pull that off when you consider that w- the way we interpret seasons and we went to this on Storytime a few weeks ago. But yeah, to win in 85-86 twice over the Aussies, 2-0 away and, and 1-0 at home, it was quite the achievement. As for uh, Bracewell, he uh, went on to, to coach Gloucestershire when he finished playing through that glory era when they won a, a bunch of white ball trophies and then he became the New Zealand coach uh, between 2003 and 2009 and on the playing field in a in a decade long test career between 1980 and 1990 41 test matches, 102 wickets at 36 but his finest day uh, was at Auckland's Eden Park in 1986 when he took 6 for 32 to ensure that New Zealand would be uh, beating Australia at home for the first time. Sometimes Sometimes we're not sure if we've got it right. Sometimes we are. That must be the answer, Sean. You can let us know. You can confirm it, uh, as can Matthew Lincoln, to confirm that I definitely didn't get his answer right (laughs) by sending us a message or or jumping on the Discord. A doubleheader next up, William Jordan in Greenbacks, Matt near the Gabba in Aussie Dollary Doos. 219 is the number. Matt will go first and you're going to take this Matt near the Gabba who's one of our uh, most insightful and prolific correspondents on the Discord channel now his clue is to be clear and this is my clue 219 is not Clary Grimmett mm, well wheelhouse in it uh, Matt who is not Clarence Victor Grimmett uh, Australia's greatest leg spinner and I say that I say that advisedly. I say that with full intention, Australia's greatest leg spinner. Uh, Who is not Clary Grimmett? Francis Anthony Ward. Frank Ward. The guy that Bradman brought in for the 36-37 Ashes when he pensioned off Clary Grimmett because of something that Clary Grimmett had said Bradman didn't like, presumably, uh, pushed him out and brought in a guy he was playing club cricket with and said, you can be a leg spinner for Australia. Now, 36-37, it's the great comeback ashes, of course, Adam. It's the one where Australia come back from 2-0 down to win 3-2, the only time that's happened in a five-test series. And Frank Ward made a big contribution to that by ensuring that Australia would lose the first two matches and go 2-0 down. So Frank Ward's first test innings, Adam, two for 138. Oh, those are the sort of numbers that you you want from the player you've just brought into the team. Oh, the second innings, he took six for those. He did take six for 102, uh, which left a 381-run chase, and Australia were all out for 58. So it didn't, uh, didn't really help. Frank made Norton one with the bat. Second match, well, he must go better second time around, wouldn't he? Uh, note, two for 132 in Sydney when they lost by an innings. So Melbourne, he gets picked again somehow. Uh, Bradman very cleverly just didn't bowl him in the first innings, uh, and, and they got England 76 for nine when England declared to try 
try to put Australia in on a wet wicket. Uh, he was stumped for seven, was Frank, so he got a gig as the night watchman in the second innings and, and made 18. That was about the only thing he did in the series. The second inning is he got a dozen overs and got smacked for 60 off his 12 overs and took one wicket. So finally got squeezed out of the team and Australia uh, came back to win that series. But when they go to England in 1938, who do you want to go with you? Do you want Clary Grimmett, who's taken about a million wickets in England? No, you want Frank Ward. So off they go. They take him off to England. They pick him in the first test at Nottingham. And uh, what was the England opening stand in that test match? 219, the very number that Matt has sent through. How did Frank go? None for 142. (laughs) So, yeah, uh, there's also a link back to his one half-decent day when he took the six for when he he got Wally Hammond hit wicket. I'm not sure what happened. Maybe a a bit came off Wally Hammond and and hit the stumps or something (laughs) when he was falling apart. But um, England in that innings went at 2.19 and over, which is also... Matt's number. Uh, and I'd also, I'd like to finish by going to Wisden for this. In their write-up of the tour, um, they they were talking about the lead-up when England weren't going too well. They said, batsmen who had gone to Australia lauded as leaders in the recovery of English cricket had recently played lamentably, being made sport of by every slow leg-break bowler they met. Some bowlers barely good enough to gain a regular place in an English county side. And against that team, Frank fucking Ward took a wicket every 99 balls through the series at an average of just under 40. Good job, Don. Good job, Frank. Yeah, and I note that 219, you referred to the opening partnership at Knots. That was the uh, that was a score that Mark Taylor made at Knots when they had that 300 run opening stand in in 1989. He and Jeff Marsh, who we've already name checked once on the show, very nice indeed. I think for that, well, indeed, I know for that, Jeff, because you've already drawn him randomly. Matt near the Gabba uh, wins himself a slab of Brick Lane, and I'm pleased this is the case because Matt has been already sampling uh, the Brick Lane through the summer. Long into the night, he's spoken of his what I can best describe as as a cricket. Den where he um, where he where he dims the lights and and goes back and listens to, to old commentaries and watches old YouTube videos and listens to the podcast and really gives this game his all. So Matt near the Gabba, you have a slab of brick lane coming your way. More to the point, you have a voucher uh, coming your way, which you can send any which way you want to someone uh, that you love or, or maybe just keep the slab yourself. I think in your case, Matt, I think you might keep the slab yourself because you're already a partial to the good drop. Brick Lane, it's uh, award-winning beer, gold medal-winning beer. Their One Love Pale Ale particularly won all the prizes. Um, they've got a, a good range of low booze options as well for people who prefer that. So you don't have to be on the drink to enjoy a Brick Lane, bricklanebrewing.com, if you want to check out their ever-widening range of delicious beverages. Uh, so that leaves William, who did not send us any further information. So you've got open slather, Adam, for William Jordan's 219. Yes. William, William, it was really nothing. Your clue, that is. And that makes me feel very happy uh, because I get to have a, a nice free swing at this. And initially I see 219 and I'm thinking this is right in dusty old bastard territory. Unfortunately, though, it's not to be because George Duckworth uh, was test player 219 for England and uh, the Lancashireman uh, played 24 test matches uh, as wicketkeeper in that interwar period where kind of everybody played about 24 test matches and wicket kept for England and, and bowled spin at some point. That, that's where the selections are at their most fruity. Nobody has 219 test wickets, which was of interest to me. Um, speaking of Clary 
Grimm at uh, that's just three ahead of him. He's nearest to the pin with 216 at 24. A few noteworthy 219s we, we've mentioned uh, already, actually, with, with uh, Tubby's uh, 219 at Knotts. Triscothic uh, made 219 against South Africa at the Oval in 2003, which, which Jeff's discussed recently. Actually, where I ended up, though, with this is the, the one-day international tie uh, between Zimbabwe and Pakistan at Harare in 1995. They tied on 2 but that's not the best bit. There's a bit coming later, which makes it very final word and kind of related to, to something I mentioned before as well. So let's start with the game. Zimbabwe make 2-1-9 for nine in their 50 overs. Pretty standard areas for a limited overs international in 1995. Amir Sohail, uh, who we mentioned uh, last week in relation to the 1996 World Cup and then Katash Prasad. Well, he took three for 33 with his um, uh, left arm filth, as I recall, Jeff. I think he bowled sort of left arm orthodox, <laughs> if I recall correctly. <laughs> All of the top six for Zimbabwe got to 20, but none of them got beyond 41. So that includes both the Flower Brothers, Alistair Campbell, uh, Dave Hubberhout and Guy Whittle. And last week we were referring to Amir Sohail in reference to his opening stand with Saeed Anwar. Well, uh, Sohail was out early. Anwar, on the other hand, had, had to keep the whole thing together. Pakistan were never in control of their chase. They were, they were pursuing 220 for victory and they still needed seven to win when Wazim Akram came in at number 11. Yes, that's right. Wazim Akram was batting number 11. This was the year before he would go on to clout 257 against the same opposition Zimbabwe, hitting a world record 12 sixes. But in a one-dayer in 1995, uh, he's remarkable Remarkably coming in last. I think by that point, he already had a test century against Australia as well back in that, that tour of uh, 19, 1991, if I recall correctly. So anyway, when the scores are level, Waz faces his first ball and he's caught and bowled. So he's out, a tied game. Guy Whittle uh, gets the final wicket. Scenes, as they say, Brian Strang set the whole thing up with his beautiful left arm medium paces. He took four for 36. What a game. Meanwhile, up the other end, Saeed Anwar batted the whole way through for 103 not out from 131 deliveries. He's only went and carried his bloody bat. I mean, you know, that happens quite a bit in test cricket, but not in one-day cricket, I assure you. Oh. He was just the second person to do it in men's one-day cricket. The first, actually, was Grant Flower in the same game, of course. I mentioned Flowers in that Zimbabwe top order. He did it the year before on that tour of Australia in 1994-95. But you run through the list of people who've done it. Uh, Nick Knight, Ridley Jacobs, Mark in, in 2000, Jeff, last week on Storytime, you were waxing lyrical about the days that Damian Martin was opening the batting in one-day international cricket. Herschel Gibbs, Alex Stewart, Javed Omar, Azar Ali, Tom Latham, Upa Tharanga, and our old mate, Dumuth Karunaratna, uh, who did so... I forgot about this, but he, he carried his bat in the World Cup in 2019 against New mm. Zealand at Cardiff, only making sort of 50-odd uh, in a pretty dispiriting affair. But I completely forgot that Karunaratna... Uh, went the whole way through in that loss. Karuna Ratna carried his batna. Um, he, yeah, they, they got bowled out for bugger all for what, about 70 or something and New Zealand chased them in about eight overs or whatever it was yeah. and got that massive net run rate boost that, that set them up for the tournament on their run to the finals. So a carried bat in a one-dayer. Yeah, yeah. A rare thing. It is. And just to put a full stop on this, only four of the guys I mentioned before have done so while scoring a century and Saeed Anwar was, was the first of those. Um, it's happened 56 times in Test cricket, 12 times in one 
day internationals and just once in T20s. And that was Chris Gale, who carried his bat uh, in the 2009 World T20 semi-final against Sri Lanka uh, when he made 63 not out out of 101. So, yeah, a couple of unusual bat carries here. David Boone and his 58 out of 101 uh, at Auckland in, in 1986, followed up by Saeed Amwa uh, in 1995 against Pakistan in a match that was tied on 219. William, what do you say? We love a Zimbabwe tie on the final word. The yes. Christopher Mpofu tie as well. And also, I just read today um, Ferdos Munda's long piece on the Cricket Monthly. Well, all the Cricket Monthly pieces are, are long about Heath Streak um, and his uh, his road to dabbling in sports betting enthusiasm, which is a, a, a fantastic bit of long-form writing. So I'd recommend people go and read up on that if they want to find out more about the Heath Streak story. We've got a double header. Next up, Dorwin D'Souza and Jack Firth. Uh, the number is 264. So for Dorwin D'Souza, I did wonder initially if he might be a Kiwi fan um, because we know that Tom Latham went all the way up to 264 against Bangladesh in 2018. Curiously, his only innings in the series, and it was not out, so he didn't end up with an average in mm-hmm. the series, but it would have been 264 had he got out fairly useful. It's also, though... What Kieran Bullock made, not in an innings, because she's got the highest innings score in women's tests, which is 242, but it's what she made in the test match when she made that double ton back yeah. in 2004. Now, there are a few things to like about this. One, it's a Pakistan-West Indies women's test match, mm-hmm. and, you know, wouldn't we love seeing something like that happen? And, you know, fingers crossed it might start to over the next few years. The second part is that she's opening the batting and makes 242, Sajida Shah makes 98 along with her. The next four scores in the innings are 11, naught, naught, and naught. <laughs> so <laughs> the top six didn't really club in after the openers did their bit. Pakistan make 426 for seven declared. They smash up the West Indies first time for 147, enforce the follow on. And then Nadine George, the Windies keeper batting at first drop, makes a ton. There are three other half centuries. There's a 46 not out. They make 440 second time around. And they set Pakistan 162. And Pakistan end up at 58 for two and, and draw the match. Uh, Kieran Balok's out for 22, opening the batting. So that's her, her 264 runs for the test match. But it did cross my mind that if this were happening today, if this match were being played today and a team got set 162 and 23 overs, they'd just about get them. Mm. They'd certainly have a crack because that would be like the teams that play so much T20 cricket now. They'd think, well, you know, a little like England did with their sort of almost 50 over chase at Canberra. They know the pacing, they know what they need to do, um, and they would have been a chance to have a go. Whereas in this case, they uh, pretty much just uh, played it safe and, and batted it out in a in a more conservative way. But it's a, a stonker of a test match, uh, the way that things went. Nine Windies bowlers getting used in that first innings, that long drag, and then it comes down to this uh, this final 23 overs in which anything could have happened. And uh, it, it raises the question that if, if these teams were to take each other on again, we'd be in for an interesting time, I think. Very nice, Jeff. I, th- I think we, yeah, we, we've done the, the, the that that massive innings before, but nice to add a bit of meat on the bones there. All right, Jack Firth, uh, 
No clue from him either in the GBP, uh, which we like. So thank you, Jack. I think he might have been a, a bit deeper in the queue, but he's been the beneficiary uh, of having the same number as Darwin and thus uh, gets yep. elevated. So well played, Jack. Of course, we should remind you of the rules if you're new to Nerd Pledge or new to Storytime. The only way you can skip the queue is if, coincidentally, your pledge number marries up with that of someone who's already coming up on the show. So uh, that's the only way you can do it. So it seems as though Jack's been lucky in that respect. I mentioned before that 219 felt like it was right in uh, DOB range. So is 264 really. But again, it's a player who's just too bloody good. Bill Bowes or Bill Bones as I like to think of him from the uh, from the uh, from the Libertines lyric. Um, there's nothing dusty about uh, that champion. We've celebrated him before on, on Storytime. Just 68 test wickets but at 22 won the Ashes a, a couple of times and uh, played all the way through from 1932 until just after the war. Wally Hammond made 200 164, Jeff, in consecutive seasons for Gloucestershire. So in 1932, he made that score against Lanks at Liverpool. And then in 1933, he made it against the West Indies at Bristol, which is quite remarkable that he would make exactly 264 um, twice uh, in the space of a year. But the time I'm more interested in, in terms of players who made 264, is Warren Bardsley. And when he made that score for the Australian 11 against the rest. Now, that got me looking at the rest. We, we often like clicking on Cricket Archive onto these obscure first-class teams and looking at their, their history. Well, the rest played 21 games between 1872 and 1940. Most of the time <laughs> against Australia in trial games like this, the, the Australian eleven against the, the rest. But they also played occasionally against Victoria and New South Wales. And my proposition, Jeff, would be let's keep Australia A for the white ball stuff. You know, so if they're using Australia A against Australia as they did in 94, 95, or they're playing a, a white ball series away from home, that's cool. But don't use Australia A for the Red Bull team. Let's go back in time. Let's call it the rest. <laughs> I mean, they've already got themselves a cricket archive page. They've played those 21 games back between 1872 and 1940. Time to bring it back. We don't have the Caxi anymore, the CA11. That's bit in the dust. But yeah, I, I, I think this is the time for this to be reimagined. It does sound a bit dismissive to be part of the rest. You know, here's the team <laughs> and here's the rest. Uh, but if they could channel that, if they could get that siege mentality and be like, we're the rest, we're, we're, we're disrespected, we're unappreciated and we're going to show them, then that would be real sort of Australian yeah. quadrant. That, that, tournament areas. That's exactly it. And they probably deserve first-class status because presumably, as long as you have a couple of smokers in there and you can divide <laughs> them between smokers and non-smokers, that's how you get first-class status. That's how we know that a team deserves the FC. Yeah, that or, or a team of actors or, or something like that. Uh, Hollywood stars and all these other teams we found that, that had first-class status bestowed upon them uh, over the long journey. So that 264 for Bardsley was in 1909 at the MCG, made in just 373 minutes. Jeff, you'll like the fact that for the rest, so in reply to Australia, uh, our old mate Edgar Ernie Main, who we were talking about, about in reference to uh, that tour of America in was it 1913, 13. I think, not just before the war? Um, he made a century for the rest. So uh, a final word favourite um, did the business there for a team that we're now very much interested in. Going back to the number, though, it was in GBP, so I thought it's unlikely to be <laughs> from a trial game uh, played in, in 1909 between a group of Australians. <laughs> so 
I thought Jimmy's average could have been 26.4 when this pledge was sent in, uh, even though it's blown out, so to speak, to 26.6 now. However, I thought, why not go back to the summer of 1986-87? I had the great fun and privilege of, of being involved in Jonathan Overend's uh, documentary uh, on this series before the ashes last summer. He made a lovely audio documentary uh, with Mark Pugach uh, voicing it uh, about that, that series, which was so successful for England, but the Sydney test match jumped out for a couple of reasons that really fantastic test. I think it was the fourth of the series, maybe the fifth actually. It must have been the fifth because they went from Brisbane to Perth to Adelaide to Melbourne and finishing off at Sydney. So so England had wrapped up the series at Melbourne the previous week. But it was Australia this week who, it's the Peter Who test match, Jeff, of course. Uh, he, he went on to be the man of the match for his six for 78 and he's 42 and if you're not familiar, so goes the story. Everybody thought they picked the wrong Taylor and they, they picked Peter Taylor wrongly and they, they were meaning to select Mark Taylor and they never quite got to the bottom of that. Although Christian Ryan did a piece for Inside Edge about 20 years ago which uh, reached the conclusion that, that it probably was on purpose but it was fairly rogue given that Peter Taylor was a fringe New South Wales player at best at the time but it did turbocharge a, a pretty a pretty good international career for him but it's to the final day I want to go um, with another Peter another spinner Peter Sounder Sleep um, who got the job done now, earlier in the test match, a big ton for Dean Jones, runs for David Gower, wickets for Gladstone Small, but it was all about sound asleep, the South Australian, uh, on the final day. So John Embury had a great test match as well, a half century and a seven for, and got England back in it. So they were chasing 320, and they were chasing, yeah, a 3-0 series victory, which really would have been something given uh, Martin Johnson famously, you know, had the old can't bat, can't bowl, can't field uh, before they started that series, and uh, they lost the tour games heavily at Brisbane and, and the Wacker and uh, and everything went right after that and when Ian Botham uh, you know really put the foot down anyway it's an absorbing final day and at all turns when Mike Gatting is caught and bowled by Steve Waugh when he's on 96 that prompts a bit of a collapse and England not only falls short, but they, they get bowled out with one over to go. Peter Sleep, I think, with his final delivery, bowls Embury, who made runs and took wickets earlier in the test match. And so it goes. I was actually referencing this test uh, on radio at Sydney this year as we were reaching the climax, saying, who's going to be Australia's Peter Sleep? Not often that you, you say that sentence uh, on radio, but uh, he was the, the Australian number one leggy at the time. The reason I really wanted to mention it, though, is that Thomas Miles has written beautifully, our patron Thomas Miles, who, who works for uh, the South East Voice newspaper in, in South Australia. He wrote a piece called From Panola to the Pinnacle, all about Sound Asleep's performance uh, at the Sydney Cricket Ground in 1987 to, to get Australia victory when they bowled out England for 264, our number, to get a consolation victory uh, in that in that series. But it was Peter Sleep's uh, finest day uh, in the baggy green. And I also wanted to mention uh, that Thomas has been hard at work on a really wonderful project on our behalf he's gone away and matched up all of the audio from the 2018 Australia-Pakistan series that we did for, for Wisdom Test Cricket Radio and, and had a marvellous time doing and obviously it's something that you and I are really well known for. Well, well Thomas got hold of the audio uh, which was supplied to us by another one of our patrons and he's been able to match it to all of the highlights that are on YouTube. So now there is a product where, Jeff, you and I are commentating over all of the highlights from that series. It's an absolute work of art. It's been made with love by Thomas and he said that 
he's happy to release it to our patrons on the Discord page. So we'll find a way to get that out, I suppose, when we're in Pakistan. Jeff will have gone uh, full circle from being on your sofa in 2014, commentating that series, to doing it for Wisdom Cricket uh, in 2018. And and you and I will be calling out this series for SEN by the time we're, this, this podcast is live. That news will be public. So, yeah, nice little story for you and me. And Thomas Miles has uh, played his role uh, through that by, by putting it all uh, nicely uh, into into synchronicity, uh, the audio and the vision from 2018. So, Jack Firth, I, I, I doubt that's your number. I doubt we're going back to 1987, but I thought this would be a nice time to drop that in. Lovely work from Thomas. Thank you for putting the hours into that uh, and good work from Jack to jump up the queue with the double header. We've got Charlie Ryan with a new number uh, and this is $9.02, so it's nine oh two Australian. Uh, Charlie, I initially was thinking top-of-the-head stuff. What comes to mind when I think about 900 pluses? And there are a handful of, of runs in a series. Wally Hammond got 9.05 but not 9.02. When he was playing at the Oval in 1938, that's when England made 903, but not 902. The triple hundred in that innings was not Hammond. That's the guy I always get him confused with, which is Len Hutton. <laughs> They're not the same person, as we've said on the show before. Len Hutton's knob is fine. Nothing <laughs> to worry about there. Uh, Got to make sure that you don't get them mixed up. Uh, Adam Gilchrist also, I remembered he had 900 plus dismissals for Australia, but that was 905 across all of the formats. It's probably not Steve Watkins' 902 first class wickets, mostly for Glamorgan, uh, as well as three tests for England, especially with the number in AUD. I doubt it's a Steve Watkins number. If this is what you want me to look at, I haven't done this this week, but I could in a revisit look at the story of James Mackay, who played in the early 1900s, uh, who was universally known as Sonny Jim, as in Sonny with a U, not with an O, Sonny Jim Mackay, because of his very good-natured, friendly outlook. Apparently, he was the nicest bloke around. And you know you're doing well if everybody calls you Sonny Jim, because you're, <laughs> you're such a nice fella. He was the first player to ever make twin tons in a Shield game, oh, right. and he finished with 902 runs in first-class cricket. So that could be the number. I started looking at series averages as well. and It's never been a series average in men's or women's test matches, never in women's limited overs cricket, never in men's T20s. And so the only time in international cricket that someone's averaged 90.2 in a series was across five one-day internationals from the bat of sports betting enthusiast Selman Butt. Uh, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say a final word favourite, but a final word uh, regular appearer. Be, careful, be careful what you say here, Jeff. We are jumping on a plane to Pakistan in a couple of days. We are. We are. A home series in Pakistan in 2008 uh, before it, it all went to shit for cricket in Pakistan in 2009 and then for Selman Butt and his team in 2010. He was opening the batting. He ransacked the Bangladeshis for 33, 76, 132, 74 and 136, a full whitewash. Uh, And you can't engineer yourself making hundreds um, because that's hard to do. But I I will note that both of the times he made 70s, he got run out. So (laughs) hmm. I'll leave that open-ended. But that... That is probably not your number, Charlie, but I thought it was too interesting not to share. Uh, you can let us know in the DMs. Thanks, Charlie. That, that's a, that's a, a great, generous pledge too. Thanks very much for being part of what we're doing over here. And to finish, Jeff, uh, in terms of new numbers this week, we have a triple header. So two double headers and a triple header in the same show. People have been busy. It's for 
24. It's all in AUD, I believe. And the three names yep. are Paul Reeve, Bernie Prins, and Brad Truter. And uh, Jeff, uh, I'll, I'll take on Bernie. It comes with a very straightforward clue, and it meant that I immediately knew what it was going to be. It was The Dentist. And it has to be John Maynard. Not John Maynard Keynes, of course. Uh, just John Maynard. The uh, short and impactful, shall we say, uh, professional career that he enjoyed through the mid-1990s. He was ferocious, a, a Caribbean quick who somehow didn't play test cricket, but everybody seems to know about. Uh, there's a very famous quote of his that is the first line on his biography. If you can't get him out, you've got to hurt them till they get out, which uh, uh, kind of leads you towards why he, he was known as the dentist because he, he took batsmen's teeth out as and when it was required. And he literally did. He, he told Andrew Miller uh, from Crick Info the story in full uh, in 2007. This was a game he was playing for Nevis where he was from against Antigua. There was this bloke playing for Antigua called Zora Barthley, who was the West Indies youth team captain. Nevis had never beaten Antigua outright in Antigua, but that afternoon we took the new ball and he was playing really late. And I thought to myself, if he's playing late now, I've got to rough him up early in the morning. So first thing in the morning, he nicks one, but the umps didn't send him on his way. And that wound me up a bit. And so with the next ball, I was four yards quicker than anything I'd ever bowled. He shaped back the hook and his teeth went flying all over the place. It was a funny old sight. God. Imagine describing is it that, that way. That it was funny? a funny old sight seeing teeth flying everywhere. Anyway, poor oh. old poor old Zora Barthley. Never heard from him again. Oh, I can't. I, yeah, I, I can't cope with stuff like that. When yeah. The odd bit of footage like that. The, the, yeah. the one of the, um, the Zimbabwe bowler, Keegan Meth, getting hit with the ball hit back at him. It's just, just horrific. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's, yeah. Hideous stuff. Yeah, so the dentist uh, continued to batter teams for, yeah, Leeward Islands and, and Nevis, uh, where, he, where I said he was from. That included England when they were out there in 93, 94. This is probably why he has such a big reputation because there were these two games that they, they played, uh, well, he played in two games, I should say, against the touring English. Neither of them had first-class status, but he completely dominated. He knocked over Atherton and, and Hussein in the first one, then went through the middle order in the second one, and everyone thought he was a really good chance of playing for the Windies at that point, but they were so strong. I mean, how do you get a game as a fast bowler for the Windies in 93-94. I mean, it's such a, a challenging lineup to get in when the first two names on the team sheet are Ambrose and Walsh. He nearly got there in 1996, but injury, just when he got picked for West Indies A, actually, but but injuries counted against him and he, and he fell out of contention again. And there's another part to this as well. When I was in Dominica in 2015, there is this real sense of the Leeward and Winwood Islands being hard done by by national selectors. There's a sense that if you're from Jamaica or Barbados or Trinidad-Tobago or even Guyana, which obviously is, you know, just lower than the other countries but part of South America that you have a much better chance of making it than you if you are from the Leeward or, or Wimwood Islands which uh, which is where he was playing at the time so anyway his overall record just 13 first class games for Maynard where he took 35 wickets at 25 including a career best of 5 for 24 which was the the pledged number that was right towards the end of his career against the Wimwood Islands and remarkably five wickets in 10 overs with seven no balls contributing to the five for 24. So uh, that I suppose that was, that was emblematic of the type of career he had. It was a very watchable career. He returned to cricket though, Jeff, after having a bit of a semi-retirement in 2006, right in time for the, the Stanford 
era when that was kicking off with Stanford's hmm. uh, T20s. As a 37-year-old in 2007, uh, he took four for nine and was player of the match in a game against St. Lucia and won himself a, a cool 25000 bucks as player of the match. Uh, such were the sums of money that were available uh, in those competitions. And uh, to learn more about that, you can listen to Greg James' documentary on, on BBC Sounds or, or watch the vision of that on Sky Atlantic. In fact, Greg's going to come on the show and, and talk to us about that, uh, hopefully in the next couple of months. So as for Maynard, he, he moved to England after he finished his domestic career. He was a coach at North Ants for a time. He actually appeared as a guest summariser on TMS a few times as well. Uh, such was his reputation as a, as a fiery fast bowler. And he continues to be involved in the game to this day over in Suffolk, where he's got a, a young family there. Um, he's described in his biography as the most famous West Indian fast bowler to have never played a test. And that sounds about right with his five for 24, the best in a strange but well-known career, John Maynard. There you go. That's remarkable. Uh, what a profile you can build from 13 first-class matches. Yeah. Uh, we've got Paul up next with a, a clue. He said, ignore the currency. Don't think about that. That's not a clue. On this statistic, he is the best among current male players using any sensible minimum qualification, let's say 10 matches. And then he said, we might need to contact him when we do the pledge because it might change. And he said, the pledge mm. today would be $5.12. So whatever the number is, it's gone down from 524 to 512. And the first thing I was thinking of was surely this is going to be Virat Kohli's batting average in T20 internationals because I know he's bounced around between about 54 and 51 consistently, That, which is freakish that he averages mm. over 50 in T20 international cricket. Last year he was up at 52.6, so almost but not quite. And right now he's at 51.5, so almost 5.12, but not quite. If you look at all players, and since they've opened up T20 international stats to all teams, there are still only two players uh, ahead of him who've both just nudged past playing 10 innings. Sami Sahail of Malawi and Kushal Bertel of Nepal currently have higher averages. So, I mean... It, it, the number is genuinely astonishing. Even Barbara Azam, who was above 50 for a while, has dropped back to 45 in, in T20 internationals. Such are the vagaries of the format. Um, also interesting that Coley's never made a T20 ton for India. He's got five in the IPL, but he's got a highest of 94 not out. He's got three not outs in the 80s and seven in the 70s. So he often makes a big score chasing and could go on to 100 if he had more runs to play with but doesn't get the opportunity to do it so it's not that and then it did occur to me it could be a bowling strike rate but it isn't because the only players in test cricket on 51.2 are basil butcher um, who was a part-timer uh, mostly a top-order bat for the Windies in the 50s and 60s. Terra Turner, who played for Australia in the 1880s, and Stephen Finn, a final word favourite, 51.2 strike rate in Test cricket. It did remind me of the comments made to us by Jason Gillespie when we interviewed him on the show several years ago now, one of our very first long-form interviews when we sat down in the dugout during a, a match he was supposed to be playing at Adelaide Oval during a, a rain delay and, and chatted to Jason Gillespie for an hour or so and I remember asking him when you were really on top of a batting team like throughout a series when you were monstering somebody did you ever feel sorry for a batsman 
and it was it's like the most the strongest thing I've ever heard Gillespie say in terms of you know he's normally such an affable guy he said I never felt sorry for a batsman <laughs> never and he he laid it out with the numbers he said think about Dale Steyn he goes Dale Steyn's got the best test strike rate in history or you know out of anybody in the last hundred plus years and his strike rate is 42 so he goes that means the guy who gets people out faster than anyone else has to bowl seven overs every time he gets one wicket and he's like fast bowling is hard hard work and if you have to do that much work just to get that one bit of reward it's like no i never felt sorry for a batsman <laughs> um, so all of this is to say i don't actually know what this number is i'd like to invite some of the crowd to get involved with this as well if you think you can figure out what 512 that used to be 524 is as a number that makes the player who has it the best among current male players with a sensible minimum qualification. Uh, let me know. Jump in the messages or whatever and see if we can solve Paul's number. Nice one. Yeah, that, that has been a, a lovely part of the chat on Discord, isn't it? That there is a channel devoted to Nerd Pledge and solving numbers that we don't solve. So often we can get the rebound uh, via our industrious... Uh, crew of pledges so uh, thanks for solving a couple of those that we might come to a little bit later actually uh, i'm up next again uh, with that free swing on 524 which is via brad so uh, this is brad truter now if only he I, I sort of struggled today haven't i with with dobs i can't quite get one that fits if only james whittaker who was the 524th englishman to play test cricket was a little bit younger he'd be a dob because he only played one test match in 1986-87 back to that series again jeff for the third time today so Whitaker was a, a right-handed Leicestershire batsman who actually got called up for the Adelaide Test match uh, when Ian Botham missed that third test. It was a high-scoring draw. Uh, Whitaker made 11. Uh, he was out to Bruce Reid. But it was the only test match where there have been three Leicestershire players in the 11. So uh, the aforementioned Whitaker, Phil DeFreitas and David Gower. Um, that's never happened again. Um, Whitaker earned his plane ticket, absolutely. He led the country in 1986 with 1,500 players plus runs at 66, led the averages and, and all the rest of it. He was a brilliant one-club man. He he led them to uh, two county championship wins much later in his career in 1996 and, and 1998 as a veteran and a real legend of the of the county circuit across nearly two decades, uh, about 17,000 runs and made 38 centuries. And then he went on to become uh, the chairman of selectors for England between 2013 and, and 2018. I remember being not very nice to him in print when he picked uh, Gary Balance and James Vince to go to Australia uh, for the 2017-18 Ashes series. I, I compared it to when in Mike Bassett, football manager, he accidentally selects Benson and Hedges to go after reading them off the side of his cigarette packet. That's how I, <laughs> I thought that uh, Whitaker might have been smoking a, a packet of Balance and Vince's. But uh, anyway, in terms of trying to find what 524 might be, I looked at bowling figures. You know, we, we only had five for 12 once ever two weeks ago. I thought, I wonder how many times five for 24 has been taken. Well, that's 20 in men's internationals and five in women's internationals. England players have only returned that uh, analysis three times. The most recent was Tony Gregg in 1972 and I thought Jeff, we really haven't spoken much about Tony Gregg on the show, have we? I mean for someone that made the sort of impact he did over a really long stretch of time, it's slightly odd that he hasn't come up in any of our stories. Well, He was involved uh, with 5 for 24 when taking those figures at Calcutta in a thrilling test match in 1972 and it was a bit of a sign of things to come for Greg as 
the bowler. So he came on third change in the third innings of the game and takes five for 24, according to the Wisdom Almanac, bowling a combination of, of cutters and seamers. Well, as we know, Tony Gregg turned himself into an off spinner by the end of his career. So, yeah, this was a bit of a sign of, of what he could do and, and the modern player that he was and the big bag of tricks he had with those huge hands of his, Tony Gregg, ahead of his time. Uh, anyway, uh, five for 24 was his best in test cricket to that point. And then in the chase, he made six. 67 to top score, but Beatty mesmerised them uh, and they were all out for 163 to lose the test match by by 28 runs, but, but Greg was influential with both ball and bat and 5 for 24 was part of it. We've talked about his commentary a lot. We've, we've cited that. Um, we've talked about the weather wall a lot. Yeah, we <laughs> probably haven't talked a whole lot about um, Tony Greg as a player. We've certainly talked about... Um, you know his his photo shoots in his jocks, and our <laughs> colleague uh, Russell Jackson has a, a very nice large couch cushion uh, where the the cover of the cushion is is that Tony Gregg um, modelling shoot photo that takes pride of place in in Rusty's living room. So I'm just not um, sure I'd get away with that in this house. I reckon if I tried to pull that off here, uh, that wouldn't that wouldn't last long. Anyway. <laughs> Um, right, that has brought us to the end of our new numbers. If you want to send us one, go to patreon.com slash the final word, sign up there, put your number in, we'll see it, we'll put it on the list, and away we go. Right, time for a quick break and then back with a, a couple of revisits as we wrap up the show. Hi, my name's Kate Cross, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. Final word story time, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. Two revisits for you today. One from Jai Sharma. Uh, he pledged 140. His clue was raising the bat at an unusual time. We had a bit of a frolic around players that reached 10,000 runs and other milestones where they might have made 140, but uh, we didn't quite get there. And Jeff, we were helped out by our friends on Discord. Well, we had some suggestions. We got one from Vivek Arcot who said, uh, does raising the bat during the walk back to the pavilion count because maybe the pledge is about Sachin's innings of 140 during the World Cup in 99 against Kenya just after he uh, returned yes. from his father's funeral, which is a good suggestion when you think about it. Um, but I, I suppose raising the bat after you make 100 isn't unusual because everybody does that if they, mm. if they get dismissed on, on the walk back to the pavilion. That's pretty standard unless they're really, really grumpy. Vivek also asked whether there had been an instance in a calendar year when the number 11 never batted. And because I'm the kind of person who will be interested in those questions, I did go and have a look. I needed to do this country by country. So I did find that Australia have never had a, a year where they've played tests where the number 11 didn't bat. Um, the lowest tally was three times in 1957. There are lots of years where they didn't play test matches around the world wars and so on. But I didn't look through every country because I, I did have other numbers to solve. Jai did solve it for us and a couple of other people guessed this as well. He says, it was Raul Dravid at the SCG in 2008. One run off 40 balls. Uh, sorry, it's a bit obscure. Obscure is fine as long as, as, long as we know where we're looking, which now I do, and this is interesting, Adam, because this is when Raul Dravid was opening. Now, it's not that he made one run from 40 balls to start his innings. He got to 18, having faced 58 balls, and then faces 40 dot balls in a row before he gets his next run. He's facing Stuart Clark, Andrew Simons, Brett Lee. He also gets dropped down the leg side off Clark by Gilchrist at one point. But what's really interesting about this is that VVS Lakshman comes out to join him when Dravid's on four. Dravid even hits a couple of boundaries after this, right, and takes his score onto 18. Laxman, though, goes 
boundaries, pull shot off Brett Lee, cover drive off Mitchell Johnson, straight drive off Stuart Clark, then takes 18 off five balls from Mitchell Johnson, three cover drives for four, another one for two, and then a flick through square leg for four. So by the time Dravid starts his dry spell, Laxman already has 58 from 52, having come out after Dravid. Dravid's on 18 from 58, moves on to 18 from 98. And during those 40 balls, when Dravid doesn't score, Laxman adds another 22, hits another four boundaries. So when their 100 partnership comes up, Dravid has made 13 of the 100 runs. And, you know, it worked. I mean, Dravid's patience was legendary and he wasn't flustered by it and, and on they went. So Laxman made 109. Dravid ended up making 53 from 160 and they wore down the Australians enough that when Sachin came in, he made 154. Ganguly, 67. Harbhajan, 63. India took a lead of 69. They made over 500 in the second innings of the Test match, and they didn't go on to win it, as as we know. It's the one where Michael Clark hoovers up the wickets with an over to go, but they were right in the game after that first innings, uh, which was uh, in large part set up by Raul Dravid not being bothered by facing 40 balls without scoring, and he did because he got a standing ovation when he made his one run from his 41st delivery after that spell and he did turn around and salute the crowd with his bat. He did, I remember it now in hindsight because I was there <laughs> so I was uh, able to uh, witness the, uh, the the third ton in the hat trick of centuries for Lakshman at uh, at the SCG and, and uh, Tendulkar ending, well not ending he played one more test match there but part of Tendulkar's incredible run there, I think he averaged 140 at the SCG in test matches, something ridiculous like that so now thank you Jai for solving that for us the other revisit was 14 21 from Joseph Ryan. Jeff, you spoke about David Hussey's best one-day figures. Joe's clue was it was his first one-day he'd seen in person. He came back to us with a, a secondary clue saying that whilst the 4-for-21 from Hussey's right up his alley, I'm afraid that's not it. Indeed, a 4-for-21 it is, but from a game almost 20 years earlier in a non-traditional venue, here's the pictorial clue and he sent through a Zimbabwe picture. And, of course, he's referring to the 1992 World Cup. And I know again, in hindsight, thinking about it, that Joseph is from Albury-Wodonga. So this all tallied. Uh, it was the final group game of the 92 World Cup. England were already guaranteed to finish second. So it didn't matter an awful lot that they were playing Zimbabwe, who were yet to win a game. But little did they know what would happen that afternoon in Albury. Zimbabwe were all out for 134, and it was all sort of broadly going to plan with both them taking three and little Dick Illingworth taking three as well. But the chase started disastrously with Edo Brandes getting Graham Gooch first ball leg before wicket, the beautiful outswing bowler Edo Brandes. At one stage, England are 5 for 43 by the time that, that Brandes knocks over Graham Hick, of course, who uh, who was Zimbabwean before he was English. So uh, a, a big moment for them there, uh, getting Hick out just after he qualified for England, actually. And Brandes also got uh, Alan Lamb out in that opening flurry. Alex Stewart down at number six, stabilising somewhat, but when he was out for 29, uh, the wheels fell off and England were all out for 125 and why is it 421? Well of course it's big Edo's figures. Uh, Zimbabwe win by nine runs and Brandes takes four for 21 from his 10 overs with four maidens uh, the day of his cricketing life I suppose. Although it must be said that Brandes was a a massive contributor when Zimbabwe beat England 3-0 in Zimbabwe uh, in 96-97 that that whitewash. It was an incredible series and Brandes actually took two hat-tricks against England in, in consecutive one day 
internationals, uh, something that's never never happened b- before or since. He was a, a servant for Zimbabwe over about 12 years between 87 and 99, uh, taking 71-day wickets at 32. Of course, very well known for uh, one of his sledges that still gets told uh, regularly uh, online, and he's probably made a fair bit of money about that in after-dinner speaking, uh, I'm sure. Just to come back to that venue, though, Lavington at Albury, I always thought it was most well-known for, yes, what happened uh, in that World Cup game, but for Hawthorne wearing the, the diamonds jumper there in a, in a practice match, a Foster's Cup game in, in 1995. What I didn't know uh, was there were two first-class gla- first games played at that ground a little bit earlier before the World Cup. The first was a shield clash between New South Wales and Victoria in December 89, a thrilling draw with all the big guns playing. And then England played a tour game there the year before in, in the Ashes series of 1990-1991. So the January of 91, they were towed up uh, by the Blues, but, but Mike Atherton uh, made a century there. More recently, Lavington's been used for a couple of WBBL games in, in 2016 and, and 2017. And, and Jeff, I reckon we've got to get back to Albury. I mean, we spent a bit of time at the start of the show talking about the drop-off in, in white ball attendances uh, around Australia in recent times. If they want to pack out some grounds, they should go to the regions and, and take international cricket back to where it was played at the 92 World Cup, where Edo Brandes took four for 21 and Joseph Ryan was there on a school trip. Uh, let's get a T20 international to Albury next year. If we have a T20 international in Albury, won't Wodonga be furious? <laughs> like, won't that really just inflame tensions along the Murray River line? <laughs> You've got to think about Wodonga in these situations. It's a, True it's, enough. It's, it's a, it's a tricky place. Uh, Jeff, we're going to leave it there for today. Next week on the show, we're going to have a whole batch of confirmations from uh, Storytime 79 and Storytime 80. We'll have some new numbers and some revisits as well in the usual way. Uh, Thank you to Woodstock Cricket, who uh, are the people who make the best cricket bats in the world. TFW20 from woodstockcricket.co.uk. Thank you to Brick Lane and good on you, Matt, from the Gabba for winning the slab this week. Uh, To our team at Bad Producer Productions, not least Dave Collins, our, our patient and wonderful editor, uh, a hat tip to you, to everybody who's involved with us on the Patreon page who make the final word wheels turn from week to week, month to month, and now from year to year. We love you all, especially uh, those who are with us on Discord. If you're a nerd pledger and are not on Discord, hit us up and we'll send you the link. And if you're not as yet, I assure you, it is the best cricket forum going around at the moment. Some lovely chat from day to day. Uh, thank you, Jeff, for all of your work. And that's uh, probably the right time for us to put the queue in the rack on story time what is it story time 82 i think it was 81 82 something 81, like that 81 maybe yeah 81 we're going to do it all again next week from pakistan as well so uh, hold on to your hats for that adam collins jeff lemon saying goodbye have a nice weekend i had to go